0: Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 60. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co hosts of the show. The other co host is Janus, and he will be here shortly. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Mr. John Graham. John is the acquisitions editor for Inner Traditions, and he's been doing that for quite a few decades, I believe. He is also a translator, I would also say an artist and probably an esotericist, mystic. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's the impression I get. Definitely an interesting character with a very colorful past and a lot of wisdom and perspective. Before we jump into the episode, we just want to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. I say it every time, but it's true without the support of our patreon members it would be very difficult to keep the show running as there are some underlying costs to doing this sort of thing if you would like to partner with us and ensure that this experiment continues please feel free to go over to patreon and do what you can we dedicate this to hermes and asclepius may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Okay, we are super excited to have Mr. John Graham here on the show. John is the acquisitions editor for Inner Traditions. He's a translator, and he's got a lot of fascinating interests. We're going to cover those, um, particularly surrealism, the surrealism, uh, the artists of that genre, as well as mysticism, magic, and whatever else comes up. Welcome to the show, John.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation.
0: Yeah, glad to have you here. Absolutely. So, as we always do, maybe let's start off if you don't mind with a little bit about yourself, um your background, and then maybe let's veer into more specific focus of how you got interested in surrealism and and we'll go from there.
1: Well, I've had fairly uh, wide variety of of trades in my life before I became, you know involved with the publishing industry. I was a Bookseller before this, but uh, I've also worked for a circus, uh, worked as a bike messenger in New York and San Francisco, still have back pains for my uh, attempts to ride up Bush Street on a bike in San Francisco. <laughs> but, uh, you know, about 20 some odd years ago, I was uh, I'd done a translation for inner traditions and then I was doing readers reports because they were getting a lot of uh, uh books from French publishers that they had no one here that could read them. So I would read them and tell them what I thought and a position for an editor came up and uh, I was invited to apply. And uh, it turned out that I was able to function much more beneficially as a, as acquiring Works is I hadn't really been a defined position until I got here so but you know my own interests paralleled that in book selling and in uh, uh working in the publishing industry I became interested in surrealism years ago as a uh, rebellious youth and I discovered uh I think it was Nadeau's history of surrealism and you know Poetry is a debacle of the intellect, it can be nothing but and I'm like, this is the stuff. And I discovered Rimbaud and Lotremont, uh, people like that. And that was like, that was my uh uh major influence as a teenager. And as I experienced, as I got more and more familiar with what surrealism was doing, it opened up the the uh esoteric world to me that I saw more and more is not just you know a- analogy, you know mystical analogy, poetic analogy in the surrealist sense are you know identical. I mean the surrealist abandoned the metaphysical aspect, the idea of another world that is key to the idea of mystical correspondences. But in in essence, if you read uh, uh, Breton's essay "Rising Sign," they're, they're, it's a it's a it's not that big a deal. I mean they're. Uh, the people that are more uh, inspired by the political positions of surrealism would vociferously disagree with me, but that part of surrealism doesn't uh, isn't one of my main focuses. And I often find that, uh, as a surrealist poet who I've been friends with for a long time, Annie LeBrun said, she used to call them Boy Scout surrealists. They're the ones that were addicted to uh, you know, heady sensations, and, you know, the idea of postponing, you know, all their disappointments were always going to be resolved tomorrow, and she and her uh, husband, Radovan Isvitz, in the 70s, after the dissolution of the French surrealist group, started a their own edition called Edition Maintenant, which is, means now, and it was taken from Arthur Cravan, who was uh, one of those eccentric figures at the turn of the century, and France, who came over, and I'm Oscar Wilde's nephew, I'm a boxer. Uh, he was uh, had a relationship with uh, the poet Nina Loy, and then he disappeared. So somehow sailing from Veracruz, he was supposed to go somewhere in South America, and no, he's never heard from again. But he's a larger-than-life figure, kind of like Alfred Jarry, And they took that no, now as, you know, to say, we need to focus on imminence, not post, always be postponing things until those days of singing tomorrows arrive, which is what the, uh, the left was always telling their followers, just hold forth because dialectical materialism is guaranteed to function. And it was my, my dealings with the surrealist when I lived in Paris were, mainly with the ones that were interested in the more uh, occult aspects, esoteric aspects. I mean, it was an interesting time. The the group had broken up in 69, so it was like all these different factions. And when were you there? Well, I've been in France several times. When I lived there in the 80s, uh, my wife was uh, a student at the Chambre Syndicale de Haute Couture, So I was working as a messenger in New York. I'd make a lot of money because uh, I could just sock away a lot of money. Then I'd just go to France Mm. and just stay there and do nothing but uh, artwork and write and meet with Surrealists. It was like idyllic.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. You know,
1: a major time of uh, a lot of things crystallized that.
2: What a life. Man, I'm envious. (laughs) That sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was. It was also. I mean, there was a lot of. Uh, I mean, a lot of the ex, the members of the group, didn't get along with each other at all. And guys always told, "Hey, if you go see so and so, don't mention me because you know <laughs> he'll freak out." And you know, little did I know when I first went there, uh, I was friend. This friend of mine, Davy Williams, who was part of a Surrealist group in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. They had a journal called Glass Veal. He said, oh, you need to go to Jose Pierre. He was an art uh, historian who was a member of the Surrealist group. And he's really funny. He's great. So I gave him a call when I got to Paris. He said, come on over. Mm -hmm. And we were getting along famously. And I just said, so whatever happened to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so? And I mentioned Annie LeBrun. And all of a sudden, this noticeable chill came in. And Annie and Radovan, who... I was actually the closest with who I became closest with were so intransigent about things that a lot of the, uh, ex surrealists who they described as running around the, the ministries, trying to pick up crumbs, you know, to, to, you know, finance, you know, to get a grant or mm-hmm. subsidize some sort of surrealist work, which was totally not in the spirit of surrealism. So they were, they were looked at rather, uh, dismally by the by the people that were trying to turn their experience of surrealism into a platform for being experts
0: and interesting so let's maybe can would you mind explaining from your point of view what what is surrealism because it sounds like it's obviously a genre of art but it also seems to branch into philosophy and politics so what what's the the glue that is kind of the denominator that well gets them all together.
1: It's funny about surrealism because the descriptions you read of it in the art books or other books are so at odds with each other, but also with what the surrealists themselves said. And the, the interesting thing is that the surrealists were quite articulate about their aims. I mean, it's ironic in a way. You have these uh, people that are looking... To connect with the deep self, free of all the uh, social inhibitions that direct how you present yourself to the world, trying to reach that, the deeper reaches of the unconscious, which is the same as symbolists or romantics. There is this, you know, removing that, that, that the social playing field that uh, dictates what you should do regiments what you should do and their view was you know what's what andre breton in the first surrealist manifesto called psychic automatism and it's just uh just the free functioning of thought will enable you to you know to to make connection with that deeper self and as someone who's done that you know you see that uh when you first start doing it, there's a lot of dross that comes out because we're, we're, we're like fish in a sea of information and we're just like filled with this crap. And mm-hmm. especially now with social media, if you're not vigilant, you're just going to be, I mean, I think the, uh, the QAnon people, people like that don't even realize they're not thinking their own thoughts. They're just parroting propaganda that they've absorbed in such indigestible amounts that it just comes right back out.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, you said it so well. There, it's something I think about a lot: the fact that people's minds are colonized, yeah, by uh, thoughts, by ideological constructs—you know, mind parasites, whatever you want to call it—and um, you know, and the the these things have a life of their own. These egregores, I guess, have a life of their own, and and it, it's just like possession by a spirit in a lot of ways. That's so true. And and you become a pariah when you refuse to participate. In being infected by these uh, parasites, you know, because because it's always an attempt to force a person into the opposing camp if that person refuses to participate in your school of fish. But if you refuse to participate in any of them, then you're met with this like outraged perplexity and this desire to annihilate.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting about the realism because it's critics. And, you know, they started, you know, the grave diggers, as as the Surrealists used to call them, were out with their shovels from the very first. And, you know, there's there's like these caricatures of Surrealism that dominate the the cultural imagination that really obscure what it is. And now we've got the unfortunate Surrealism is a milk cow on one hand or a punching bag on the others. Uh, A lot of... uh, radicals view you know like uh there's the feminist view of surrealist men as oppressing the women and making them muses there's the uh the radical left that sees the surrealists as diverting the energy of the working class into profitless activities you know and and, you know and as the I guess it was one of the Stalinists said about surrealism is that they pervert what should be just the clear, clean relationships between men and women with all their perversities. You know, and, you know, then if you read in the New York times, you know, Breton is always called a Pope. I mean, I get stuff on surrealism. I always do a word search and if they use Pope in there, I want to find out because that automatically as Octavio Paz, the Mexican poet said, anybody who calls, Breton, a Pope, is basically saying, I'm a swine. <laughs> and, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If he was a Pope, you'd have a, a, a rigorous school, a regiment of regimented images. And the thing you find from all these artists and the pictorial part of of, of surrealism is really just one factor. There were ethnographers, there were scientists. Uh, Michelle Uriah was a surrealist, went to the one of the major... Uh, African anthropological expositions uh, in Dakar to uh, Ethiopia with Marcel Griel, who was the French anthropologist who discovered the uh, Dogon's understanding of Sirius before, you know, it was possible for any uh, technology to see it. You know, there's there's a lot of, I mean, surrealism is just a vast subject, but you know the way. Yeah, surrealism in popular culture has come to mean something that is just so ludicrous and crazy that it just completely boggles the mind but, one thing
2: i don't want to interrupt your thought
1: yeah that's right um it's but it's but it's actually if you look at it as surrealism as super realism it's like Sir Om, the Superman, as Nietzsche Superman was also, he'd be, he'd call it the Sir Om. It's like, it's a superior form of reason. It wasn't uh, advocating for dream instead of reason. It was like it depreciated reason because reason had too strong a grip and was inhibiting people's ability to develop poetically, to develop their poetic selves. But it was, you know, the trying to establish a non-dual understanding of dream and reality
2: you know it really recalls the idea of the aboriginal dream time being this you know the state of primeval primordial creativity and constant genesis or like the egyptian zep tepi it's the same same thing really i mean you anticipated what i was going to mention is that i'm intrigued by the state of the, the the primacy of dream and surrealism and, and the, the the way that returning to that state of, you could say, like, pre-rational or, or non-rational consciousness as a valid state of awareness that is implicitly creative and powerful.
1: No, that's totally true. I totally support that. And, you know, there's this, well, I guess the easiest way to think about it is that there's an ex- exoteric surrealism, which is what most people think of it as. And then there's the esoteric surrealism which is what you, the insiders view. The esoteric has always been what you learn from the inside. You get that if you're uh, working on any uh, magical path. You know, all of a sudden you reach this point, once you've been initiated, so to speak, and surrealism depends a lot on self-initiation. You know, it's not, it's, there isn't a lot out there, but there was a group that kept your feet to the fire, so it were, as it were, and would also you know, dump people that were not helpful. Like Salvador Dali, when he was uh, trolling people by, you know, talking about, you know, how he wanted to have sex with Hitler. And, you know, Hitler was like, uh, you know, the most surreal being alive. And they're like, we don't need you anymore.
2: Well, you know, Dali also had that uh, that idea of er- erato comatose lucidity. Yeah. I mean, he was literally doing magic. He was intent. I mean, a lot of his art was an act of intentionality. Um, Even if he wasn't necessarily doing magic to produce concrete effects in the outside world, it it seems like his whole intention was magical.
1: Yeah. And I think you find that with a number of other surrealist artists, uh, Victor Bronner, Leonora Carrington. Uh, Victor Bronner is especially interesting because he, his father was a medium and he, as a, in reaction to his father's life, he was rather a, a doctrinal Marxist, became a surrealist painter. And I think sometime in the late 30s, he lost an eye due to an accident. But what was, what was really shocking about this is that he had foretold the loss of an eye. He had been doing paintings, including a self-portrait of him several years before, without an eye. And he did a very weird mystical uh, look. So it's it's like a very magical painting, where this figure has a sword runs through its eye, and there's the D at the end. And the person who threw the bottle that broke and uh, a piece of glass took his eye out, and he was trying to break up a fight between that the bottle thrower and another surrealist it was Oscar Dominguez. So there's the D. And Pierre Mabie, who was, you know, we've translated one of his books that I pushed to do it. I really hope, I, I was really hopeful that it would attract more attention because he's written a number of great books, including a book on Egregores from pre World War II that's quite interesting. And he was uh, a student of Pierre Piob, who was a major French occult thinker who was the first to translate. Flood into French out of Latin. And he was an MD plus an astrologer back when astrology was uh, not something you could read in newspaper columns. In fact, he delivered Andre Breton's daughter and the next day came and drew up her chart. So, you know, it was very fascinating. And he wrote this text about, you know, the painter in the eye that documented this whole thing. But after Victor Bronner lost his eye, his painting changed completely. And he looked at it as a kind of shamanic uh, transformation. And his work got incredibly magical. And you see his when he was hiding in France because because he was Jewish, uh, the American authorities wouldn't give him a visa to escape France. So he moved into the hills. And because he was one eyed, the uh, locals knew he was a magician and steered clear of him that he would you know hex them if they messed with him and you know he said even though hitler made it against the law for me to breathe somehow i survived and
2: he. Was- you know, this is so interesting to me too because it, you're talking about this man who documented this act of essential like art, artistic precognition and then you know what you would have no way of knowing is last night uh i had a meeting of i have a diviner's circle that meets here we discussed divination and i had a specific conversation with several people about how losing an eye gives you insight into the inner world because one of the people there her her, her left eye doesn't work and then oh, here wow. you are in this interview discussing the loss of an eye as a magical as a magical gift and the fact that and the fact of our, uh, of the precognition of a story of losing an eye, the 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 day the day after, I'm having a conversation about the exact same topic. Well, that's it's- amazing.
1: Yeah, well, that's you know that's what the surrealists would call objective chance, which is one of the most uh, prominent forms of where magic and surrealist activity dovetail.
0: Can you elaborate on that? That was actually my next um, question. Funny enough. Um, just the idea of objective chance, is it is the same as synchronicity?
1: Yeah, it's basically, it's like synchronicity, but the Surrealists used to record this happening now. Uh, in Breton's book, Mad Love, he writes about going to the Paris flea market with Giacometti, and they both found things there that resolved longstanding intellectual problems they'd been having. Giacometti was had been trying to figure out how to finish this work, and it was driving him nuts, and he found this old... Gas mask, or something that you know was now you know a stylized version of that. It was, it was part of one of his most famous uh sculptures. And Breton found this wooden shoe with a Cinderella slipper at the a wooden spoon with a Cinderella slipper at one end. You know, and it was like this thing that just sort of resolved this kind of emotional thing. And also, the book itself. He talks about one of his poems that he least liked, foretold in explicit detail the night that he first met his second wife and all of a sudden he realized that you know he had you know when when he was going through that night with her it's his poem started flashing back to him but
2: uh,
1: yeah i've had i mean i've had things with objective chance when i was a messenger i was like and i view facebook that way too i call it the one-armed bandit of objective chance you just have to like you know see what comes up if you're like go in there and just say what's going to pop up in <laughs> response to something you're thinking about it's sort of like uh bibliomancy you open a page mm-hmm. of a book and whatever you fall upon has has the key to what what you're trying to solve
2: you know it's really intriguing um i you know i have my child is one of my children especially i have two my child is very unconsciously psychic so you know it it's caused me witnessing this on myriad occasions. It's caused me, and I, I've you know I've experienced this, and I've seen it in others that I've been close to, and it's caused me to uh, sort of reevaluate. I love the term of objective chance because it's caused me to reevaluate these experiences, which you know are probably constantly happening. It's really the simultaneity of reality. You know, I think I think maybe Buddhism anticipates it a little bit in Zogchen and then the idea of dependent origination, you know, but it's just such an interesting idea, this idea that it's not a volitional psychism. It's it's an unconscious psychism that's pre-existent.
1: Yeah, I've I mean I've I've had incidences where that happened. Yeah, you know, at a point when I was a bike messenger and I was, you know, trying to you know, making a decision whether to continue the path I was on or just breaking and doing something totally new. I like get to a stoplight and there are too many pedestrians, so I couldn't run it. And uh, the car that was right next to me had a vanity plate that said "Follow," but uh, you know, and Hegel talks about objective chance. You know, it's where you know internal uh, reality mirror external reality mirror, mirrors internal necessity.
0: It's fascinating. And so from the surrealist paradigm, how, how would one tap into that um, in a practical sense or, th- or through some sort of practice, just through well, making, the, making, I mean our... the,
1: ba- the basic practice would be, you know, just automatic writing, just
0: mm-hmm.
1: writing that out until you reach that point where the lead that's coming out of your head gives way to gold. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because the surrealists, a lot of the first generation of the heroic generation became famous artists, Magritte, Ernst, all of those people, but they all started with the idea of just being modest recorders of what their unconscious gave them. And that was what Breton was always pushing for. And when he wrote the, you know, he wrote about auto, uh, automatic, right. The history of auto, automatism as being one of unrelieved failure. This, one of the reasons is that too many people were trying to turn it into uh, aesthetic objects and were missing the dynamic that under that were, and they were excluding thereby the dynamic that that brought it into being. And the dynamic is what he was always about. And, you know, you see the evolution of Breton's thought, you know, where he was in the 20s and the first Surrealist Manifesto is not where he is in the, third manifesto, the Prolegomena, which all, you know, talks about the great invisibles. And you also, with Surrealism, they're, you know, different. There are many different groups. The Belgian group was very Marxist. They were very hostile to Breton's uh, overt uh, use of the occult and mystical things in like the 1947 exhibition which Browner and all these artists made altars and they had all these uh, alchemical illusions. Uh, I mean, it was never absent from surrealism. I mean, the second manifesto, he said, you know, he was looking for alchemy, like in alchemy, the imagination was going to take a stunning revenge on all things. And in the first manifesto, he's talking about mediums and using there that's, you know, so psychic automatism, it's like making the connection to the deep self, and once you've made it, you realize it's there. And you know it's ironic, you know, that these modest recorders all became, you know, world famous artists. Mm-hmm. But again, they also belie the impression of s- surrealism as some sort of regimented art activity, because you can never mistake a Bronner painting for a Dali painting, for a Magritte painting, for an Ernst painting, for a Tanguy painting everybody's paintings are so unique it's not a school it's not like mannerism
0: yeah visually there visually there is a connection so how would you describe the visual um aspect of surrealism and and what connects the different aspects if they are so different um from artist to artist well
1: it's it's the the spirit that generated them it's the unconscious that they're pulling them out from and so they're they're idiosyncratic i mean there's a there's a lot of paradox in surrealism i mean the 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 scholarly view try to tether us to their pictorial understanding of it Mm -hmm. because they don't really they're not really comfortable with the ideas underneath it so you know as a way to just say it was an art movement dismisses the intellectual ferment and you know the There are many of the writers that were also artists. Breton made really interesting art objects. Belmer, whose art is, you know, incredibly profound and, and, you know, mind-stopping, wrote a book. It's not, his book isn't like a theoretical explanation of his work. It's more a poetic counterpart. And it's like, poetry is like the key, but it's poetry understood in, you know, Breton, uh, Baudelaire's sense of correspondence is an analogy. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and then when you get into Baudelaire, you're looking at that overlap between the symbolist and the serialist schools. And he was the um, enfant ter- terrible of, of of that idea, you know, because it's like heresy among the symbolists almost to be doing that. But really, there's more overlap than they're willing to admit. I think Apollinaire is a good another good example. Yeah, of that. Yeah. Or even Mallarmé, I mean, What's a chance records a roll of the dice or whatever? I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. this a lot of the symbolists were playing with very surrealists. Oh um, yeah.
1: No, I mean when you when you read the you know, the stuff that hasn't been translated, and I've read tons of things. I mean, uh Breton and Aragon, the leading thinkers of Surrealism, especially during the period when it transitioned from Dada to the Surrealist movement, you know. They were talking about Kant's categorical imperative and Hegel and Ficht and all of these important philosophers. The philosopher, but that's something that you don't, you rarely see in the scholarly overviews of surrealism. And I mean, what I mean, as I said, surrealism is more than meets the eye. It's paradoxical. A lot of the surrealist uh, writing is reversals in the form of when Isidore Ducasse wrote Poesies, he was taking moralistic writers like Pascal, Volvenarge and reversing their, what they said for his own particular ends. And Breton did that and it went unrecognized by so many people. They don't realize that even the first line in in English is such as the belief in life and the most precarious aspects of life by which is meant real life. That in the end, belief is lost and that's based on a French, proverb about you take the well and fill you take the bucket to the well so much and fill it with water that in the end you can't carry water with it because it's you know so you get he's got the rhythm Mm -hmm. of it but people will recognize that people would like automatically french readers would automatically feel that that idea was familiar even though it's it's transporting utterly uh, unacceptable ideas to, to the majority of people. And you've got uh, his, his book titles, Les Pas Perdus, which means the lost steps. You know, to us, that's just a poetic title. But in the French, you know, at the Stade des Pas perdus, the, the Hall of Lost Steps is the traditional name for a waiting room at a train station. And he would take these clichés, these commonplaces, and renew them, put them in a new context so that all of a sudden it would, sort of like a trapdoor out of everyday life into a deeper perspective.
2: a subversion of the mundane by a transposition of the super mundane exactly.
0: yeah, good way to put it. And would you say the catalyst for all of this? I mean, you mentioned Dadaism a second ago was essentially the horrors of World War one that they kind of set this movement off to a, to a degree.
1: That was uh, good. That's a good part. I mean, a lot of. I mean, I I don't agree that that was the sole thing. That mm-hmm. these were they would have been just, you know, happy to become respectable poets and painters if uh, mm-hmm. World War One hadn't come along. Yeah, because they were. I mean, I, it's what Radovan Izdiz is it's, it's, uh, a surrealist, uh, a Franco-Croatian playwright. Uh he used to talk about the amorous heresy that could be traced all the way back to Hermes, you know, that, and the surrealism was the latest Mm. example of that, that these are ideas that are always on the fringes, always on the margins, and often violently suppressed by the Inquisitions and whatnot. And, you know, so I, I tend to feel that the war was a great Athenor crucible for that, Mm-hmm. and they were all part of it i mean paul elioar the max Ernst, realized that they had probably been shooting at each other at one of the battles that was right. fought during world war 1 and as a complete exposure of of uh, the hollowness of all the stated values of that of western culture at that time world mm-hmm. war 1 you know it can't be surpassed i mean it's still horrific today right. I mean, uh, Movie that just won all the Academy Awards, all *Quiet on the Western Front*. That's just relentless brutality. You know, it's like
0: it's hard for us to imagine um, the mental uh, damage that that would cause. Uh, mm-hmm. Large picture on society um, as well as all the in- the individuals involved.
1: But one of the saving graces, as it were, in World War One, Breton, that. Uh, Jacques Vacher, who was one of his, who's I'd say, his dominant influence, you know, who wasn't really a poet. He actually scorned poets, as he called them. And he was uh, a champion of humor without, without, without the H. And he wrote like seven or eight letters to Breton that Breton later published. And he was like, you know, he would uh, he stole an English officer's uniform that he used to go to, to wear to do things and. You know, he died of a drug overdose, and not in 1919. And it's still not known whether he did it on purpose or it was an accident. And somebody died with him, and that was all part of the mystique that you know he was just so uh he was so not enthralled to bourgeois expectations of life. He was so completely free. It was like Glosinero, you know, the the the, the great. Criminal of the night of nineteenth century Paris. That's in the. Uh, if you've ever seen that movie, The Children of Paradise. Yeah no. Yeah, it's a good movie.
2: You know, this also makes me think a lot about the the magician as you know traditional role as archetype. Because, um, you know, one of the reasons that it could be argued that the magician is often outlawed in 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 culture is because the magician exists at the boundaries of reality and threatens the. The sort of collective paradigm with the incursion of alien forces and you know the weakening of weakening of the dominant paradigm and we see this in there in this kind of art as well
1: well yeah you see that in societies i like say might be more functional healthier societies such as native american or like the indigenous societies there's room for that
2: mm-hmm. the
1: the shaman like the the sioux had the rotten belly society that was you know the opposite of all the noble warrior values for all the people that didn't fit into that because their contributions to the the people would be different but they weren't shunned there were no jails i mean there weren't no asylums
2: it's like the eastern it's it's like in tantra where the the things that are abhorred in the shakta cult are the sacraments yep so there's that inversion there's that value inversion that's necessary to become free and it's also just necessary for some who are naturally outsiders you know it it really results in a sacrality of 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 the um of those who are different of of the outsiders rather than making pariahs of them and and i see a third thing happening in our culture now where um the idea of the outsider is fetishized into a parody of the reality of it and then that in turn is objectified and commodified and sold back to the public as a simulacrum. Yeah,
1: you know, that's what I, I wrote a preface to it, the translation of Belmer. And I talked about the switchbacks of, of modern discourse, the opaque, you know, that, that just kept adding more levels of opacity at every turn. So that all that was left was the agenda. And I'm, I mean, I, I still believe that I think that, Many people are incapable of really seeing writing or or speaking as anything that can be free of an agenda. That you're just allowing the spirit within to to speak, to express itself. Most people are always looking that there there's something you're selling, there's something. But you know that's inherent in the world we live in, where everything is a commodity. Everything is, uh, you know. I mean, the the modern right wing is all about weaponization now, but weaponization of culture has been going on for a very long time. And now that it's coming back to haunt them, Mm -hmm. they don't like it, but it's inevitable.
0: Right, right. Um, So let's talk about someone I don't think we have touched on yet, Um, Kurt Seligman. Oh, Um, Kurt, yeah. 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 I think you did a translation of his work and it was published well, through, is that right? Through inner traditions. We
1: well, actually, his book was originally uh, published, I think by random house in New York and uh, with the Seligman foundation, mm-hmm. uh, we got the rights to res- rescan the, you know, I found a really good copy of the first edition and we scanned it and just recreated it because a lot of uh, inferior versions of it had been released in the intervening years where the art wasn't was poorly reproduced things were just chopped out and so we put it together in a nice package
2: it's beautiful and, and you know this book rocked my world when i when i was maybe 19 or 20 i, I had I was fortunate enough to have access to a first edition of it because i worked in an occult bookstore and it was just I just loved, I mean, it's such an amazing, excellent book. I mean, it's a feast for the eyes. The writing is profound and uh, insightful. And um, I feel like pretty, a pretty balanced examination as well.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's one of the key books. I mean, for, and especially at the time it was written, you know, you think, you know, we live in a time where, you know, there's a, what a wealth of books on magic i mean when, and there's a lot of dross in there but you know yeah. because i'm studying doing a lot of study of runes and north cosmo- cosmology and there's some good stuff and there's a lot of bad stuff but kurt, kurt seligman just had a very you know it's a, it's a good foundation good foundational work on which to, to undertake your journey to any of the different uh Schools of magic he discusses, or traditions.
0: And the book we're talking about is the Mirror of Magic. Do you feel, and it sounds like you probably do. You feel like it stands the test of time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I yeah. think it does. I mean, it's. it's uh, I mean, I'm my job. I get to see a lot of stuff that nobody ever sees because it doesn't go past me. Yeah, and so, so I have a I have a sense of, you know, the dangers of the squirrel mind. <laughs> Uh, where people, as soon as they reach an impediment in their chosen path of initiation, then hop to another branch and do something else, you know, or take a take a year off to do Reiki or something, and then, but mm-hmm. you know, the but they never get to that point where you know, to, for me, magic is all about transformation. If you can't transform yourself, you can't change other things. But it's also you know, it's like the romantic, the romant- German Romantics understood: it's inside that you see the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, that was Novalis, Grote even said it. It's like you know, you go within to see, to really
0: see what's out. And and I've seen personally, I've seen kind of um, people that are, I don't I, I don't know if it's it's a fear of that alchemical process, but there seems to be a trend where that. Uh, the inner vision is is kind of secondary um what people really think is is the the good stuff is is making making something happen um, outside of themselves first and foremost um but but I think you're right that alchemical change should probably come first and it's probably well, the I think, more important you know,
1: that was the purpose of the great work yeah uh, I read something that was Trying to debunk Nicholas Flamel as being an alchemist because, well, if he was so good, why didn't he have a lot of gold? That's <laughs> the, the proof, is that he didn't need gold by the time he finished the great work. Because that's, once you realize it, you know why you want what you want. Yeah. You're no longer a slave to your appetites. You're no longer a slave to whatever transitory desires are flitting through. And, you know, you're, you've reached a deeper level of self. Of, of Know so that the things that might have drawn you into alchemy are no longer important
0: when you reach the exit. Nicely said. Very nicely said.
2: You know, it's also that state of ecstasy, whether we're talking about the Dionysian ecstasis, which takes you out of the self, or the Odinic ecstasis, which really is a sort of a entering into the depths of the self. But there's this upwelling of 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 transrational um power and and vision is such a huge part of that too you know the the idea of vision and what is an artist without vision what is a magician without vision you know it, it almost seems you know vision is sacred in traditional culture you know you were talking about the lakota before and i mean you know vision is primary to to the mysteries in their culture from what i understand
1: no, I mean, you couldn't be a functioning human being within that social context if you hadn't gone on a vision quest. That's how you became who you were. That's how you you grew into the person that would be, you know, a full member of the people. And it's funny you say that about trance because before the Surrealist manifested, in between Gada, which was sheer provocation, scandal for the sake of scandal, and just, you know, you know, unbridled, uh, rolling of conventional wisdom and those who represented it. And the first Surrealist manifesto where psychotomatism was defined. There was a period called the, you know, they call it the period of sleeping fits. It was actually trance states where a number of Surrealists would, 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 it, were experiments, experimenting with in, going into trance states. And the poet Robert Deneau was writing these aphorisms and puns that were like really close to those of Marcel Duchamp. But he said he and Marcel had established this link in their brains when he was on the trance so that he could just, you know, the same kind of thought would come out. And he was uh, apparently the 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 best of going into trance states. Uh, René Cravel, another one, was also at it but it's interesting that the trance state is is key because you know when Odin is on the on Idrisol for nine days he's that's a trance state he's going into a trance state and I see a lot of connections I mean that's something I'm I'm still working on it, but it's this idea that G alpha C alpha now you know I myself to myself When Odin is on the tree, he says, I sacrifice myself to Odin, myself to myself. That, to me, is psychic automatism, is that you're sacrificing the uh, social construct that you have as an ego, as an an identity, to a deeper self within that has access to deeper insights, greater understanding, and is actually, you know, the magician archetype is, is within but you can only reach that by being a fool, and that's what the trance state is about. You're letting go. You're, you know, you're letting go of control, and that's, you know, that that is the uh, social identification of, of of a fool is that they have no boundaries, they have no sense of decorum.
2: That I mean, that's and that's so true, and it goes into it goes into so many levels. I mean. You know of course in some schools of buddhism it really the anatta really means that there's no that the self is simply a construct but in others it's really speaking about what you were talking about the constructed personality and even how that's a product of prior karmas but there is a indestructible you know there's an indestructible buddha mind so whether it's present that self is present and it's an incredible um to to go you know to make that transition but it, that transition has a sacrificial aspect just like what you said about odin because you have to be willing to experience the death of the of the of the construct that we call that most people that's the only self they know
1: that's true i mean i i wrote a piece for uh uh with the folger magazine can't remember the name right off the bat. Uh, Victor Bronner, which is all about the, the conflict of it between objective chance and the will that the magician draws upon to work as well. You know, that, you know, that there's obviously if you're just going to be, uh, available, disponible, as the French say, you're not working your will. So there's like a tension there that I think Bronner was able to, he was able to find that sweet spot which, you know, in surrealist terms, I call it the unsilvered mirror, which is like glass mirror at the same time. And that his work draws from both that he had, he was a magician. I mean, he tried to work magic. He had some really interesting anecdotes about his practices. And he realized that he wasn't really good as a magician, that he was causing unintended consequences, you know, that it involved uh uh, one was he was he had a crush on Dora Marr, who was Picasso's famous uh uh model for the weeping woman, but also an incredibly good photographer, surrealist photographer. And he gave her a scarf and also a painting. And in the painting he like snuck in this little thing where their initials were entwined. <laughs> and the next time he saw her, uh she so came to return his scarf with you, letter, and he. She had a black eye, and she said, "I don't know what it was." And I opened the door with my dad. And he just punched me in the eye, and then he said, "I don't know why I did that." And then Bert- uh, brother was like, "Oh, I'm I'm messing with forces. I don't really understand yet."
0: Wow, wow. So, I mean, that's that's an interesting cautionary tale because my next question was going to be practically speaking (laughs) how can people uh where where can people begin on this path because it is such a all-encompassing topic um what's a good way for someone to start i I know that there's i mean you can go the poetry route you can go the visual art route you can go the writing art or writing route um where would you suggest someone started if they just want to maybe start to to just dig a little deeper into this world
1: well again i'd say it's just you know, to, to touch base with yourself and and to just throw out all aesthetic concerns, right. I mean, I have reams of automatic, uh, aut- automatic writing that I've kept that is just garbage, <laughs> but you know, it, it enables you to just flush out stuff and eventually you reach that deeper level. And I think it's a state for drawing. I mean, I do things now and it's like, once you reach that thing where you're not trying to create a specific Uh, result. Yeah. You're not trying to, uh, solicit a reaction that you're just doing what comes out. You'll, you'll find some treasures. And then, you know, I mean, Breton, if you see his manuscripts, he rewrote everything. I mean, everything's crowded. He didn't, it wasn't just pure automatism. But what the point is, is that he was able to reach this, these things, these, these insights. By just letting his hand write without it, without any interference by his mind, and he also he and Philippe Sapul experimented with speeds. You know, they were looking at if you write as fast as you can, if you write as slow as you uh. can. Look at different ways. You know, and uh, Surrealism was big on games. I mean, it, you know, it, you you get you, half their activity was playing games with each other, like the exquisite corpses. Mm -hmm. Uh, all of these things they did that over and over there was the game one and the other which was like this riddle game that just seems completely impossible but they would just guess each other's uh, uh, answers like Benjamin Paré goes in and describes some coffee sock and somebody realized oh it's the Amazon River but they just had tons of game When I went Radovan and Annie came to New York at Group Hydra which was a offshoot of i was what the french called the dissident surrealist because in america we have the chicago surrealist group which is the orthodox group and uh you know they're the the last big surrealistic uh beyond surrealism mm-hmm. is, is that it ends in the 80s with ted jones and the chicago surrealist group and i have a rather uh, ambiguous relationship with them. Most of my friends are the people that left him who described their animator as uh, as a as a Ubu caricature trapped in a hall of mirrors. <laughs> uh, and so i' I not and they're very they're very political. that's like his whole thing, you know he's always voting Lenin and Marx and making that. and that doesn't i'm I'm not really. That's not my thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and you're a book guy. Um yeah. so so what books would you recommend?
1: Well, you know, if you're if you're really interested in surrealism, I mean the key books are uh Surrealist Manifestos, uh Peasant of Paris, and Treatise on Style by uh Louis Aragon, Breton's book Nadja Mad Love. I mean, you basically just everything by Breton. Mm-hmm. And, you know. When i was younger as the it was the first manifesto second manifesto second manifesto is so amazing it's got so many alchemical prescriptions in it and you know that's where he called for the veritable occultation of surrealism because the public understanding of it was threatening to capsize its principles but the one that really interested me is his his last one which is in a much different place which is the Prolegomena to a third manifesto of surrealism or what and it's just filled with these little it's very short but he just throws out these things you know about you know he was envisioned creating ideas that would spread like fire in the minds of those who read them but actually because they just ended up making big clouds of dust out of them and he said it, he realized that you know you have to realize as, as a creator that the caliber of the mind who created something it's not going to be the same you're not going to find the same caliber of minds everywhere so things are going you're going to have to expect that that reduction of your thought
2: well you know i also wanted to mention another thing that's great about this movement is the fact that it continues to the present day and it has it's had so many interesting iterations i mean you mentioned leonora carrington um, you know, her and hodorowski the Mexican surrealists, um, they they're, they were so focused on magic. They had such a magical emphasis. I mean, oh, yeah. it seems like Leonora Carrington spent half her time on the astral plane, if you look at her art.
1: And her friend Remedios Varo was the same.
2: Oh, Varo's amazing, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and there's still plenty of uh, surrealists today. Uh, there's, you know, there's some amazing work being done. Joris uh, Carl Bacardi, Uh ex-Chicago group member Tom Burns does, is an amazing painter. Uh, there's Jack Dobbin, who lives in Arizona, who is the only uh, uh, non-Native American artist to ever be featured in American Indian magazine. Wow. Because he was doing works with uh, Michael Cabote, I think his name was, of artist Hopi, where they were doing these murals that combined Celtic and Hopi motifs. Wow. And he lives, he and his wife Terry, who's also an amazing artist, live south of Tucson somewhere, Uh, not far from, not too far from the Mexican border. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of surrealist activity when I'm, you know, Jan Smockmeyer is still.
2: I was going to mention him. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And, you know, he's a, he makes no bones about, he's a surrealist.
2: If anybody listening to this has not seen the films of Young Spengmeyer, there they need to immediately go. I, I'm showing my showing my age. I think I almost said go to the video store, <laughs> but then, yeah, you know, uh, I I don't know which one's my favorite. Maybe Faust.
1: Faust is great. Uh, Conspiracy of Pleasure. Not just like I've seen that several times. You know the the chicken. So
2: good. <laughs> Alice, I mean. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you know, there's, there's a, we didn't even touch on surrealist cinema really. We, you know, we could have talked about Buñuel. We could have, you know, talked about Hodorowsky. We could have talked about, um, you well, know, that's, we-
1: that's the thing is that surrealism is not just painting or writing. It's like everything, you know, there's like so many different things. When I first went the first time I visited Prague, I stayed at the and, we went to see his films at one of his friends' house who worked for Czech TV because, you know, it was still the communist era. So I had to go register with the secret police because I was staying at a private citizen's house. Wow. And the first day I was out there, you know, this the neighbor came out to ask me what I was doing, and uh, Jan's wife, Ava, came out and started screaming at her. She said, don't talk to her. She's a spy. She works for the state police. Don't Just kick her. Don't, don't talk to her. And, uh, he had a friend who worked for T- Czech TV and he, he stole all the clippings from the editing room, all the bloopers and they made Samistat films out of them. You know, and I saw all these great Machmeyer films and then my Czech was not up to catching it. So, uh, uh Ludwig Stab, who was alive then was a member of the Czech surrealist group was translating for me and explaining the context and You know, you have these people that were like the uh, Lester Holt of Czech TV blowing their lines and then saying, well, it doesn't matter anyway. It's all lies. (laughs) (laughs) And there was like this morality, this guy from the secret police who was in charge of morality for the youth. So he did this whole thing for him that apparently was quite popular, spread in secret throughout Prague, where it looked like he was masturbating furiously under the table while he was, you know, Delivering moral prescriptions. Oh my God. But That's he had so... film cans filled with this stuff. He says, it's inexhaustible. Every day they do something wrong and
0: I just bring it home. That's awesome.
2: How cool it was. Oh man, that must've been so amazing to watch that. It's, it's just, it's like that too. It's a, it's, it's almost a necessary. It's a necessity against, uh, you know, in the war against um, in the war against the mundane and the war against the forces of deadening, you know, deadening grayness that seek to eclipse the brilliance of the human spirit. It's necessary to engage in acts of, you know, quote unquote, poetic terrorism. You know, and and it, you know, even we could even like we we you we could even talk about uh, by, uh, Brian Giesen, you know, in the in his cutups and the Dream Machine, mm-hmm. all of that. Dom and I, I remember we were we were just in our late teens and we were experimenting with it. We made, we built the dream machine and we experimented it. We were constantly trying to go into different states of trance and, you know, just throw ourselves into this place where there was no rules, no right into pure formless consciousness.
1: Well, if I had to define surrealism in one line, it would be like uh it champions exaltation over depreciation. There's That's this in uh, his Breton's little uh, essay called Rising Sign or Sinyasandong, he's talking about the importance of analogy and what the principles of surrealist creative expression is, mainly poetry. But he quotes this uh, incident from Zen where one of Basho's students said, take a red dragon high as a haiku. Red dragon high, pull off its wings, Pimento and Blasher said, No, no, you've got it wrong. Pimento, give it wings, red dragonfly. <laughs> and that, you know, that's Breton's, you know, analogy for what the surrealists are all about. And I think that's true. I mean, Annie Lebrun's work, uh, Rada von Ibsitz's work, uh, you know, Leonard Carrington.
2: That's, you know. Do you like Bataille?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny about Bataille because when I was living in New York at the same time as in Paris, it was when Rosalind Krauss in October, and he did the Lamar, Fou, Lamar Fu, uh, uh, photo exhibition. And she was like, "Bataille's is the real surrealist. Breton is like some bourgeois, you know, cook up, you know, I got into a real argument with one of her, uh, acolytes. So I was sort of persona non grata. And then I wrote, <laughs> I wrote a pastiche of, you know, uh, Annie Lebrun wrote this great book about Sod. And in the magazine October, this guy named Alan Weiss wrote this uh, critique of it. So Stodd was only a machine to generate text. Who is this woman saying there's lyrical uh, elements and this or that that means nothing? It's just he was just generating text. So I wrote this thing. I can't remember the title, but it was like I called him Alan and (laughs) you know, reverse the uh, machine to generate text, uh, the machine to uh, strengthen uh, passion and philosophy.
2: That's cool. Yeah, I mean, and there you go. There, There's again a magical principle, the idea of reversion and reversal and inversion. Yep. You know, it, whether whether it's a, a magical act of transgressiveness by... Um, embracing the other or a meditative act of inverting the consciousness from projection into external form into intro introversion uh, introversion into who is it Um, Milo Rigaud in 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 uh, in in Milo Rigaud defined voodoo as introspection into the beyond and I, I like that as know, that's great yeah movie. I haven't
1: read that book in a long time now City Lights it. yeah yeah no I that. That was one of my early finds. I mean, there are so many books I found along the way. It's like the list I have is like the desert island list. You know, I'd say, well, I have to build a, you know, a minor bibliothèque nationale, na- French national library, because there's too many books that I need. I mean, my house was uh, uh, destroyed in a flood like, uh 11, uh, 12 years ago. And I didn't lose everything. And actually, one of the reasons that I didn't was that we were cut off from the world here so fema and all the authorities couldn't get in so people were just going in and rescuing all the stuff they could as soon as the, the the state got in they sealed off the house because they said it was unsafe for people to go in there but so but i lost a lot of my library unfortunately i did save uh, a
2: lot but uh, I, I know that pain i i had a i had a house fire and i you know, the, the books are one of the hardest things to lose.
1: Yep. Well, it's, it's funny because it's in, you know, I, I had this weird uh, displaced memory where I'd be looking for a book on the shelf and I'm like, well, maybe you're just remembering it from the old house, not the new mm. house. <laughs> That's torture. Say, well, if I'm looking for the book, I better get a new copy because I need it. And yeah, I do right. need books for translation. I have like, I do a lot of two translations. So I'm always getting uh translations of obscured medieval romances and things just to, oh, cool. to you know, there's like uh, La Mer Bete, which means the congealed sea. It's like the ice pack as viewed from a medieval perspective. But it's all part of, you know, the Imran of St. Brendan and all the, they're all stuck in this congealed sea. But, you know, when you're reading it in French and then you're like, well, am I sure about this? So I'm always having, I'm always triple checking, cross-checking with the available data. I do that with, with Norse stuff because I bought a lot of, uh, I mean, I really should learn old Norse, but I'm really not that it's like how and when <laughs> <But> <laughs> I bought a bunch of books by Reggie Boyer translations because the French translations can often pick up on things that the English translators don't.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: And I've also been picking up some other things by uh norse norwegian and swedish people because you know the, the eddas are just filled with interesting stuff depending on how it's translated and it's like gold vague. for years it's like lust for gold it's not at all it means gold power drink gold cloth gold mead whatever it's like and it's even the mead in the,
2: bearer, the mead bearer
1: yeah it's even in the in the uh the names of the dwarves in the same, and then the Voluspa, where they talk about Golvig. One of the dwarves, like there's Gandalf is there, but there's also Vig, which when they bother to translate the name, they usually do quaff or, you know, spirits or something. So it's, it's really, it really speaks to the whole, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, The Woman with the Mead Cup.
2: Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a very important book to, to these yeah. studies. You know, what's interesting to me, I was just thinking this the other day, um, what's interesting to me is in the Eddas and the other other books, I mean, the, there is a polyvalency to the language, this deep, deep poetic substratum. It's it's so similar to me to what you see in Sanskrit, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very similar way that you can't just assign one meaning. And so, like any translation into English, which is really this the the you know the great great grandchild of the very practical down to earth Roman language of Latin it just does a disservice to to something like Old Norse or you know or or you know Sanskrit or anything like that where there's this language that has all of these meanings are like emanations from a central idea. No,
1: that's so true. I mean, I'm I would I mean if I had time, I would love to learn Norse, but uh, just to be able to add my own contribution to. You know, my own idiosyncratic interpretations but you know i have a number of people that i mean we have uh we publish, uh Stephen flowers who's got you know incredible understanding of that and he does read old norse and german you know he's,
2: it's really helpful to be able to do that and i mean that goes back into the consciousness thing it's like when you're talking about trying to remember you know if this book was on the shelf or not That happens with me sometimes, even with memories. I'll have a memory and I'll be like, wait a minute, was this a memory of something that happened in waking life? Or is this a memory of something that happened to me in a dream? Or is this the memory of a memory I had in a dream?
1: Absolutely. No, I've had that too. I mean, I mean that the, the thing with the flood was, you know, pretty powerful, but that was one of the things where I really had a, I mean, a mystical thing as I was in the house when it collapsed, it wasn't, flooded so much is that the house the ground underneath the house was was torn out by the water so the house fell over wow um, and um Jeez. my daughters were like the cats are still in the house so my wife and i went in and she just left with the second cat who just popped up out of nowhere i'd been like i mean it's one of those what if situations because like a minute before i was on the third floor looking for the cat. Then I went down. I don't know where he is and there it was. And she grabbed him and she said, let's get out of here. And I spotted this bag that I had put all our important papers in. And I went to grab it. And it was like a step away from the front door. And the next thing I knew, I was like, the the house fell over. It was like all those beams were breaking like rifle shots. And, you know, when I came to, because it was like this this, it overrode my senses just to, it was so such a radical event. and I, you know, came to, and I was under books and all this stuff, but a bookcase actually saved me because it had fallen in such a way that all the rubble went on either side. And I just basically thought to myself, well, it looks like it's over. This is it. And I, Like the water's coming in and I'm like, and then I just felt this, really profound sense of peace that I've never really felt in any other situation. And then this voice as clear as day from in, I mean, some people would say, oh, a guardian angel or whatever, but this voice that I felt coming from when says, well, that's your decision. Mm. You can get out and here's what you need to do. And in pitch blackness, it told me that, you know, I had to take off my coat to get out of this and guided me out. Wow. And then of course, you know, I was back into real life and you know the voice disappeared. But since then it gives me another understanding to what Odin found and what psychic automatism can find.
2: That's so intriguing. It's so interesting. It's very lagus. The whole experience is very, very the very much the ruin of lagus. Yeah, know?
1: yeah, that's good good way to look at it.
2: I remember having dreams once of, of just uh, a house house covered in water. And then I realized um, when, when when my house burned down that people don't think about the fact that there's the fire, but then there's also the water because the pipes break and the, the house becomes flooded with water and there's water constantly pouring through the house after the fires hit it. And then, of course, it's hit by firemen with water, too. Right so the destruction is always fire and water. <laughs> it's like they come together at this nexus point of of destruction,
0: so I wanted to touch on one more question before we wrapped up. Um, okay. and it m- might be controversial. um, it's it's relevant to our current, you know era. Um, so we had touched on AI earlier before we started recording. And I was wondering, um, if you think that there's any benefit to AI, at least visual art. Um, and to kind of set that up, I'd like to ask maybe, with surrealism, is is it um, more to the benefit of the artist, the the art itself, or is it to the viewer or is it equally beneficial? And if so, uh, could AI art be beneficial? Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. no no it's a I mean it, there's a lot of yeah I have a lot of conflicting thoughts about it and yeah. I know some surrealist artists that use AI and they do it well and they make really amazing images I myself wouldn't do it because I feel like you'd have you'd have that computer computer interface as an intermediary that would be filtering it would act as a filter in some way to what I'm really looking for mm-hmm. but I mean, I've seen images, and uh, I'm inspired by surrealist images, even if they were not made for the viewer, so to speak. And I I see that, uh, you know, it's like Bertone talked about making objects that had no utilitarian purpose, Uh, and he discussed this book that was like this 3D dwarf with fur or something, and, you know, and he just put them places – So they'd be eruptions of dream into everyday life just to, you know, right, just to exalt rather than depreciate. And I have, I mean, AI is writing. I'm, I don't really, I'm not for it. I get a lot of rehash anyway. So I'm very, uh, I'm not receptive to it. And I'm, there's a free uh, app that some college student made that cool identify chat GTP generated text that college professors are, you know, using on mass now. And I'm like, I need that too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because
1: I don't want to waste my time with somebody because it's, it's, you know, it's the, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that probably extends into AI in all forms. Can the self transformation happen if you're not pulling it out, if you're not working deep in the self and then, as Annie LeBrun, who's very uh, her one of her the elite motifs in her work is there are no ideas without a body, there are no body without ideas, and we live in a world that's constantly trying to partition them. And her all her work, and that's just one of the points he makes about Saad – is that he's not a pornographer. You know, he's a philosopher. He's like Hume. He's like you know. You can find, and all of these things are illustrations of that. And as a, as a, you know, even in the, uh, works, like, let's see, the Chateau de Chile, 120 days of Sodom, you know, the people that are the victims are from the upper crust of society. They're not the poor girls that are being trafficked across the world by Saudi Arabian pimp slavers or whatever. I mean, Saad goes right to the top. And, you know, they're all aristocrats. I mean, I, there's a reason they put him in uh, in an insane asylum, that his ideas were just too uh, singular.
2: Thought crimes.
1: Yeah. He he has this great letter, uh, if I can remember it properly. But basically he's saying, you know, my thought is what defines me. And, you know, people are, I was in response to his wife, if you just like, not try to force your thinking onto others. He said, my thinking hasn't caused me any problems at all. I'm very happy with what I think. It's what other people think that's responsible for my misfortune.
2: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny about this, uh, it, 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 and I think that that points to a essential, essential thing here, which is the, re- the 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 reduction of the tendency towards independent thought. We started the conversation with that, too, of the idea of the mind that's colonized by, by you know um, ideologies and perspectives and uh, ideas which are really collectively defined and I believe determined as like Genesis purge called called them the world preset guardians, you know yeah, <laughs> you know and I th- I see in um, virtual reality an artificial astral plane. You know, and I, I see in um, AI art, there's artificial art in, in things like the ChatGPT. GPT, this artificial thought. And it, it's the illusion, the simulacrum, which is becoming a substitute for genuine experience. And it's, it's taking people further out into the realm of the senses while at the same time paralyzing their agency.
1: It sums it up nicely.
2: Yeah, it almost becomes a sacred. Uh, injunction to, mm-hmm. to magicians and the yogis and the mystics and the and the you know, runesters to to wage war magically on this on this false reality that's attempting to be formed by the rulers and reshape reality and for a better more re-enchant the world for a more magical future against this intrusive. I mean, because it's really, you know, I've said it before, it's it's a Philip K. Dick world, we just live in it. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, i have to agree with that. <laughs> it's getting scary how accurate his predictions are becoming. I mean, mm-hmm. you, re- I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his books, and it's like things that weren't true 20 years ago when I was reading his stories are now becoming true.
1: No, he was definitely prescient. He reads so much science fiction. And I used to read a lot of it when I was a teenager. That you know the Jetson vision of the world isn't hasn't happened, and I don't think it will. I don't think the the driverless car will never function. I don't. I don't think it'll. I mean, there's just too many. Uh, I just can't see the software that can take into account all the acts of chance that could happen in between your driveway and the store two blocks away.
2: Yeah. That's a good point. So to, to conclude, where do you if it were up to you, where would you where would things go artistically in the future and magically? What would you what 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 would you like to see the future become?
1: Oh, that's a <laughs> Well, I mean I would like to see uh, the polarization, the false polarization that exists would be dissolved if people were more in touch with their deeper selves. You know, it's like, you're seeing, you know, people build a scarecrow, an ideological scarecrow that they use to uh represent themselves in real life. And you see these, it's like, what were they called? Rock and sock robots or something, <laughs> you know, battle bots. Well, it's like these, you know, these, this pasties of ideas that are, constantly changing in response to whatever is, is currently popular, and there's no memory left. I look at it, I, actually, that that's actually where I want to go. It's like we're living in a time of Hunan without Mugen, and it doesn't work. That's what social media is. There's no Moonin. And as Odin said, I worry about my ravens every day. I worry that Hunan won't come back, but I really worry that Mugen won't come back. And I think that's memory gives us context. It gives us a frame of reference that provides a deeper sense of things. And, you know, with the Surrealists, I mean, the Surrealist group you don't have outside of, there's some groups still left. There's a group in Leeds in the UK that's really interesting. Uh, a group in Portugal. the Czech group, but you know, there there aren't groups like the French group. It was like this paradoxical thing where you had a collective organization in which individuals could flourish. At the same time, it made possible this pooling of thought, which created a synthesizer that they wouldn't have arrived at otherwise. And I'd like to see that kind of camaraderie again. I'd like to be in a world where people could work together and create together without all the garbage. Without you know, there's so much stuff that we just that
2: is,
1: we're drowning. We're drowning in trivia.
2: Yeah, I dream of the same world. I mean, there's there's this intentional divisiveness and polarization that's created, and really, it comes from just an imprisonment in false concepts of identity. And and to what you said about memory, I mean, you know, that's what Plato said: all knowledge is remembering and so supreme knowledge is knowledge of the self knowledge of the divine and knowledge of the universe and if we follow the the injunction of memory then really it has to do with remembering all of these things and how can you do that if your mind is caught in a spider's web of of identity constructs projected Mm -hmm. you know like i'm concerned you know i'm you know the universe is inherently holographic according to one perspective and and yet there's this scary sort of, um, intersection between, uh, virtual reality and, um, uh, you know, the, the virtual reality and, and the AI and all these things, which is producing another kind of holographic universe, which is, you know, like it's just, it's unusual. And so I, I think that what you said about memory, if we can also remember our origins, wherever those origins are, if you can excavate. And and go deep, and you know, be like the dwarves, and go deep into the mind of the self and excavate.
1: Well, there's also with remembering, it's like remember, and that echoes this shamanic thing. When the, when that individual is chosen to be a shaman, especially in the uh, Siberian Mongolian areas, often they have this experience where their entire body is broken into pieces. And the spirits remember them, put them back together, and that to me is like uh, it gives you a, a deeper resonance for just how important memory is.
2: That's an excellent, excellent point you made there, and I, I think that it encourages us to retain, re, return to the archaic perspective and an archaic no, worldview.
1: Yeah, I'm totally on that. I mean, <laughs> i you know I've been spending the last several years. But I went to Iceland and um all of a sudden i had to explore the runes and i've been doing that ever since so
2: i just had somebody try and tell me the other day um last night they were like oh i just heard recently that the runes actually weren't used for divination you know before the 1800s and i just was like where did you hear this and then i remembered oh no this is like There is this theme right now to try and discredit the uh, divinatory nature of the runes, but anybody that, I mean, not to, not that there isn't an an argument that draws upon actual forensic evidence that completely disproves this point, but anybody who's worked with the runes knows about their psychic power.
1: Well, they come from the Norns. So you're dealing with what should become. (laughs) (laughs) There's no, no way around it. And you've got, uh, rune scholars like Barnes and Page, who like totally they and Barnes, I think it is, says, I don't read the Eddas or any of that stuff. I don't want my thinking to be contaminated. So he takes the runes totally out of context, so he can just specialize them as marks on stone. And of course, there's no and that idea that Runa means mystery. Well, that doesn't that's irrelevant. But it, you know, it's good to to read him and see what these people are thinking. But I vehemently disagree with him. <laughs>
2: So where can people, where can people find your work? Where can people find some of the stuff you've done?
1: Ah, well, I published, uh, in you know, I published an article on Victor Bronner and Abraxas. I, you know, my artwork, Latest thing I did. There's a, uh, some surrealist in New York that I contributed some artwork to, to a, a new magazine called uh, Nigredo. i you know, I've been doing other people's work for so long. I'm actually working on something now, but uh, it's, uh, I mean, I have a translation of Belmer that's hard to find now, but Dominion Press published it. And I'm still really fond of the translator's preface I wrote for that because I came up with all these terms that I really enjoy still using, like, uh, you know, the modern critics, uh, character assassination by Babel which Belmer is particularly subject to where all of a sudden people, these professors channel their inner Freud to, you know, dissect Belmer's
0: work. Nice. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug?
1: Two books that we're publishing by Marlena Seven Bremner. The first one just came out and there's another one.
2: We love her work. Yeah. We had her on the show for the first one. Yeah.
1: This is, I just got the advanced copy it's not due out till July, but we got a copy. And so I snatched it up. Awesome. great. And she has a chapter on surrealism in it. And it's, uh, she's wonderful. I mean, I'm just like, yeah, Yeah, we love her. Yeah. And she's like, so articulate. And, you know, I'm just, I, I met her at the, uh, esoteric book conference the year I, I did. I gave a talk on surrealism there one year, like seven years ago or so. And then I saw her again at the Mortlake follow up that William set up at the Masonic Temple in Greenwood, which is, which is nice. I mean, I liked, I really, I really missed them. I wish he would put them back, but I can understand why he is reluctant to shoulder that responsibility. He's had a few years without doing it, but.
0: Nice. Well, John, thank you so much for your time, your insight oh, and the education you gave us and, and the audience. We really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks. I was very I'm happy to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. I was very enjoyable.
2: Okay, that was John Graham with an interesting conversation about surrealism and esotericism. I love surrealist art, I love surrealist poetry, I love surrealist film. I love surrealism. I think it's a it's just an interesting approach to art. I love the overlap with dreams and I also like the 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 opportunity that surrealism gives us to step outside of the ran, rational mind and the analytical intellect and go into the irrational, go into the absurd, go into things that are transcendent to to you know conscious interpretation as it were the the world of dreams which i think david lynch for instance he's he's great with that so to talk about these things with john was such a pleasure and to hear these interesting anecdotal stories was so interesting what a what a cool person what a what a interesting person i would love to be a fly on the wall and you know some of the conversations he's had and the places he's traveled to and the people he's known i mean
0: i'm a little jelly <laughs> yeah no totally i mean it's a fascinating he's a fascinating guy and it is such a fascinating topic um surrealism if you don't know much about it you might just think it's it's just another art form but it's so interesting because it's so much more i mean it could be a lifestyle for for a lot of of people who kind of engage in it. Um, like you said, it's po- and like we talked about poetry, cinema, uh, visual art, um, I mean there, it's kind of limitless and it, it really can go hand in hand with a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this show regarding, you know, magic and mysticism because it is so um, intertwined with the unconscious as as really the foundation but also um, the, the whole idea of it being surrealism, being super reality or super rational or not super rational, but super real. It's just a, it's a really interesting concept and um, path. And yeah, I'm glad we, glad we did it.
2: And there's an interesting overlap even, and like uh, Zen ideas, you know, uh, and I think that surrealism offers a great space for magic and a lot of great surrealists were magicians. You know, Salvador Dali was definitely intentionally into magic. And um, hell, even H.R. Geiger, which you could say he's a symbolist on one hand, or you could say he's a surrealist on the other, but very much intentional magician. And, um, you know, so there's that magical overlap there, which is so intriguing to me. The, the idea because when you're entering into the magical world or there's a lot of really cool Haitian art too made by um, Voodoo initiates like Franz Zephirin was one um Hector Hippolyta was another and you know they use the the serialist modality to depict their experiences with the Loire and the spirits of nature and, or Leonora Carrington is another excellent example of a intentional magic user who, was also depicting her astral experiences, Hilda off Klimpt, who is a maestra of abstraction, but there's certainly surrealist elements in her work too. And the overlap between the symbolist movement and the surrealist movement is one that I always find uh, just endlessly inspiring. I mean, I can read a volume of Apollinaire and Mallarmé and be very satisfied with the overlap and the, the sort of common ground as well as the divergences i think it's nice it's like with the symbolist you're entering into a symbolic awareness and and a sort of a sort of intuitive cognizing but with the surrealist you're entering into a sort of dream state where where you're no longer cognizing at all really you could say but you're you're moving through things in a sort of almost abstract way
0: but of course, there are always going to be symbols, as is you know obviously evident in you know dream work and stuff. It, it dreams are, are surreal, but they're also symbolic. So there is a real blurred line there, yeah, for well sure.
2: Said. Well said. So bookwise, what do you have for us this week?
0: Okay, so um, this is actually one of the most interesting and engrossing books I've I've read in a long time. Uh, in the prologue, the author writes, "Um, I will be analyzing a collection of ancient texts that claim to reveal the true nature of reality and describe a way towards liberation from mental delusion. So, uh, sounds very interesting to me. The title is Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination, Altered States of Knowledge in Late Antiquity by uh, Wouter Hanegraaff. It's, it's a really great book. Essentially, it's a, a commentary and an exploration of the uh, the ideas, concepts, techniques found in the Corpus Hermeticum. Um, it's a, a very scholarly journey into the heart of the Hermetica, but not in a, a tedious or bland way. Um, it's written in a style that's engaging and entertaining. Um, and while it is scholarly, scholarly, there is a lot of... Uh, speculation that he makes in the book which is which is totally fine um you know it's all very well informed and and rational you know in the book he helps establish a very believable and viable context for for the period uh, a context for the people who composed it and those who followed the the doctrines outlined within it he makes a compelling argument for for instance for iamblichus as well as uh, zosimos as being likely initiates in uh, Hermeticism, uh, found, you know, as found in Greco-Roman Egypt, he describes like a very likely congregational and priestly structure for the practice, which is at its core very Egyptian, but also um, undeniably informed and infused by the you know ethnic influences that were uh, inescapable in this time and place. You know, I was, I was really impressed with this work. Um, especially how deeply Wouter goes um, with his analyzing and exploration. Uh, it's a book that i I plan on reading, you know multiple times because you know, I find myself focusing on just a few pages at a time and and you could literally just read two pages and and just kind of contemplate what you've read for a while. And, and, you know, it takes a little bit of time to digest because it's just so full of really interesting knowledge. And uh, he put a lot of work into it, obviously. So um, that is my review. Highly recommend uh, Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination, Altered States of Knowledge by Wouter J. Hanegraaff. And it was put out by uh, Cambridge University Press. It is a little pricey. Um, I want to say it's close to $150 um, which I, I typically don't buy books that expensive but i would say that it's it's definitely worth every penny rather than buy maybe you know two or three mediocre books or you know some leather bound limited run book about you know saint cyprian or some something like that you could i think this is money uh, well spent
2: well professor hanagraf is one of the leading minds in this field of study and of this generation and his opinions his perceptions are based on a very very meticulous scrutiny of the subject matter of the milieu of the context there are very few people who understand the subject as well as he
0: does oh and it's it's evident when you when you dig into it i mean it's it's so deep. Uh, it's, it's perfect for, for nerds like us.
2: Well, thanks again for that review, Dominic. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. I also want to give a plug to a band called Crooked Mouth. They put out an album recently, which I've been enjoying a great deal. I believe they're a Lithuanian band. And the album is called Between the Magician and the Fool which is an intriguing, captivating title that I just can't can't (laughs) stop thinking about the title of this album. It just, something about it really just hooks me. Um, But the music is excellent. Um, I love it. It's really good, really thoughtful, uh, mystical, somewhat apocalyptic folk with traditional elements to it. Uh, It even has a touch of, I would say, almost like a surrealist influence to it. Really beautiful music. And um, again, the band's name is Crooked Mouth. And the album is called Between the Magician and the Fool. We are not being paid anything to promote this. Uh, We are just promoting it because we like to promote people who are doing cool things. And they're doing something cool. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you on the next one. We'll see you on the flip side. You can find us everywhere you find things. So do the things and find the things and meet us there
0: (laughs) okay that's good